Mac Power Users, episode 135, Workflows with Serenity Caldwell. Hello, everyone. It's David Sparks. Along with me is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. We've got a special guest today, one of my favorite geeks, Serenity Caldwell. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, Serenity, I've, I've always been a fan of yours, and I, I love the stuff you do. And I've told you this, and I know it's it's kind of gushy, but you know, I have a daughter who's a geek. And, and when we listen to the stuff you do on Incomparable, we really enjoy hearing your voice on it, you know, because it's normally this group of guys who've got this one take on everything. And, and you always have a unique one, and I've always wanted to have you on the show to talk really Aww. about geeky stuff. It's, I like how you keep the guys in line. Well, you know, somebody's got to. Somebody. It's a very tough job. <laughs> if you don't know Serenity, she's a, a writer for Macworld Magazine, and she's also kind of the chief mucky muck for the, the publishing uh, line of the Macworld publications. I know, Serenity, you're the one who's putting together all these great publications Macworld has been putting out in terms of the books and the eBooks and all the all the stuff you do there. I know you, you even gave sessions this year about it at Macworld uh, mm-hmm. Expo. And yeah, we're definitely- um, go ahead. Oh, I was, yeah. Um, I, uh, I do a lot of work with our, as sort of the editor of our Macworld ebook series. Uh, thankfully I'm not in charge of, of the magazine or any of our other, <laughs> of our other publications, but, uh, yeah, I definitely, yeah. The, uh, the ebooks, I, I have my head very deep down inside. One of the things I really like about this is the way you guys are so spread out. I mean, like you and Dan Morin are in in Massachusetts and Jason's in San Francisco and people are just all over the place. But you guys managed to put together this great publication. Yeah, um, we we um, are one of three brands in our sort of parent company. Uh, PC World and TechHive are our two sort of other big ones. And PC World and TechHive work primarily in our office in San Francisco. But Macworld somehow miraculously has gotten very uh, very spread out across the country. Uh, there are a couple of us back east, Dan Moore and you mentioned myself, and Lex Friedman who lives in New Jersey. Um, and then we've got um, some West Coast editors who don't live in San Francisco like Shelley McFarland who does a lot of our business stuff lives up in uh, Portland. So we've it's it's really nice. We've managed to get a, a really good uh, workflow going for working remotely and still being able to keep in good contact and work well with each other. Well, and I think when get- we had Lex on the show, he was saying that can actually be a benefit because it gives you in total the Macworld staff a, a longer workday because you, you, you guys start on the East Coast covering things. And especially with Apple, a lot of their press releases tend to hit, you know, first thing in the morning. So it keeps people on the West Coast from having to get up so early. And then you kind of hand it off to them, and and they cover kind of the, the the tail end of the day when you guys are winding down. Absolutely, it man, it it allows us to all work a relatively sane work day as opposed to like I know some of our counterparts who don't have a lot of East Coast support uh, will sometimes end up pulling you know seven in the morning to nine at night shifts to try and cover everything and make sure everything works. And thankfully, uh, we can work a, a little bit more normal of a schedule as a result. How do you guys do that? I mean, with respect to to news stories that are developing, um, do you have a, a a shared like IRC group, or I mean, how do you get the information between you as to who's going to take over these various issues? Oops, sorry about that. There's a <laughs> cop car. Um, 
I'll wait till he goes away. That sounded like a puppy. <laughs> Very. Please pay attention to me. Yeah, as, um, we're re- as we're recording this, it's Saturday morning, so my my lawnmower brigade is about to start <laughs> marching past my house. It's just adding character to the show. There you uh, go. Yeah, we were using um, Campfire for a while to organize our uh, coverage, and then Lex actually built a tool for specific stories so that we can almost almost like a filing tool where we can just say, all right, someone is working on this story uh, and hopes to have it going in two hours or hopes to have it by tomorrow morning or something like that. So we have a quick snapshot. And then this year we moved off Campfire to HipChat, uh, which is a really, really nifty little little tool for keeping in communication. And now the entire – all three of the brands uh, use it, not just Macworld. Um, it was on the suggestion of John Phillips, uh, who's a PC World's head editor who used to be over at Wired, I believe. And he's like, oh, you have to use this tool. It's so great. It's so much better than Campfire. <laughs> you know, Lex talked about HipChat, but I don't think we ever got into what makes it so much of a better tool than some of these other things. It, 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 what makes it better than just like an iChat or an iMessage or something like that? What, what does it do that's above and beyond? Oh, HipChat has a lot of things built into it. Um, it actually works very similar to um, Apple's Messages app in some ways in that you have a buddy list that's automatically populated with everyone who works in your company or everybody basically who's uh, has permission to be in the chat room. And it shows whether they're online or off. Um, and then in addition, if there's somebody who's offline, say, you know, if news is breaking and we want to let, say, Philip Michaels, who's the head of our online coverage uh, for all three brands, if we want to let him know, oh, we're publishing a breaking story, um, if you ping him in the chat, it will automatically send either an email to his email address saying, hey, you've been pinged in this chat probably for an important reason, um, or it will actually even send out a text message. So – that it allows people, even if you're not directly in front of your computer and staring at HipChat, you can still get notified if you're needed in a conversation or if we need you for something. And then there's also private one-on-one chats built into HipChat, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, and video chat support, although I haven't really messed around with that yet. HipChat was an, Air, an Adobe Air app on the Mac for a while, which was a bit of a pain, but they finally came out with a Mac beta. And so far, that's much nicer and very pleasant to use. Yeah, Adobe Air apps are one of the things I try to avoid. Yes, generally. us too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we we made the sacrifice for HipChat and uh and it's turned out pretty well. But yeah, there's yeah. there are a lot of really neat features. Um and you can have multiple rooms and then you can have private rooms that only have a subset of each of your entire company's roster. So, you know, we have a room that's just for news, and so only the people who are directly working on news um, and need to be in contact about breaking news go into that room, and they can hash it out and leave the staff room relatively intact so it doesn't devolve into 100 messages on, oh, did you see that thing? Uh, should we cover this? How should we cover this? What's the, you know, right angle to go about? So it's it's nice to have the the variety. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a nice looking app. I mean, just it's very attractive. It is. Um, I said the um, the switch to a uh, Mac native app as opposed to an Adobe Air app. It was already very nice looking as an Air app, but it had a couple of bugs because it just you know Air doesn't necessarily work a hundred percent with uh, OS X scrolling ability. So you got very like jerky scrolling and some crashes. Uh, but the the beta is quite nice. Uh, I've had no complaints with it since since we started using it. This would be really good if you had a small company and. Uh, that did anything and you just wanted to have a way to keep everybody connected. 
Absolutely. Yeah, um, I I really like using it for our company. I mean, our editorial staff, the Macworld editorial staff is only about 14 people. And then our total editorial staff across the three brands is about 30. So we, you know, we're still, despite having a, a relatively well-known name, uh, we're still a very small company in terms of the editorial side. So it's nice to have some place where we can all touch base and check in and, and communicate with people across brands. Now, the, the campfire you were talking about, that's the 37 Signals product. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a fan of 37 Signals, but I have not spent much time using any of their products. Um, Don McAllister, uh, who does Screencast Online, has kind of a 37 Signals group set up, an informal group for podcasters that I occasionally participate in. But you know, I've never really used it for my day-to-day work. How would you compare Campfire to um, this new product you're using, HipChat? Well, I actually uh, – I think Campfire has some good things going for it and we used it for many years without too much complaint. Uh, our biggest problem is just that the iPhone, iPad support was just horrific in terms of their only third-party – Campfire had an official app that was iPhone only and I'm not sure to this day if it's been retinized. Um, and then it had no iPad app option. So uh, for some of us who are, you know, Dan did a, a, a series last year on working solely from the iPad and trying to communicate via the campfire, like the various campfire apps. And not all of the apps are fully featured based on um, what campfire can actually do. And then if you go via the website, campfire has a website option, as does HipChat. Um, not all of the features are available there either, and it can sometimes get frustrating um, so that was the main reason we switched away. Um, and also it, it just it has a few less features than HipChat. It doesn't have built-in video conferencing, um, although it does have built-in audio conferencing um, where it will actually generate a audio conference number if you need that kind of support and service. So there's guys, like – go ahead. I'm sorry, do you guys do much video conferencing where you put your faces on the screen and talk to each other? For Macworld, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of essential because of the amount of people who are out of uh, out of the office. We do a weekly uh, Google Hangout, actually, and we check in using that, and that's a good way. You know, audio meetings are nice, and we used to do audio meetings for a long time before Google Hangout became an option. Um, but it's so easy to check out of an audio meeting. You know, if you're not talking actively um, or if the discussion kind of goes on a small tangent over to say something that you're not directly working on, it's very easy to check out of the meeting and be like, okay, I can just, I have my phone on mute anyway because I'm just listening to the conference. So maybe I'm going to go and grab a snack or something. You're not really focused. Um, Whereas I think Google Hangout makes you much more aware and puts you much more in the meeting physically. Um, I feel like I personally always pay a lot more attention when I'm on a video meeting versus an audio meeting. You know, we've had a couple of people who work remotely and have been on the show say that. I, I know the folks over at Small Soft, Smile do that regularly. Gene was telling us that, you know, they have weekly video meetings and they tried the audio stuff and it just didn't work as well. So there's definitely something about kind of being kind of physically but not really physically present in a meeting. You're just less likely to goof off. I know I would be. Mm-hmm. Well, they even like on some of the the new products like GoToMeeting and GoToWebinar, you can get statistics as to whether or not the people attending have the the window open that shows the seminar or whether they're in a different seminar or whether they're in a different window. Oh, I mean, so, that's so like, 
it's if yeah, a bu- that's that's a little evil. <laughs> yeah, so like if if um I did one recently, I did a webinar, and, and I was looking at this uh, the statistic. I'm like, well, what does that number mean? And they said, oh, that means a bunch of people are are checking their email right now or doing something other than looking at you. I eat. And it just made me kind of boring. sad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't even want to know. Yeah. It, it makes you self-conscious, I imagine, especially if you can see the number while you're speaking. Yeah, when, I remember one of the first uh, seminars I spoke at about technology stuff. It was interesting. This was years and years ago, how um, the uh, the room started filling up about 15 minutes after I started talking. And a, a lot of people showed up late. And I'm thinking, what's going on with all these people being so late for my talk? You know, if they if they want to hear it, they should be there at the beginning and and somebody told me, "Oh no, they were tweeting that that you're you were doing well, and apparently one of the other speakers wasn't, and a bunch of people just abandoned and came over to your session." Huh. I'm like, "Boy, the world is really getting difficult for speakers." <laughs> yeah, you have to basically be on at all points, and heaven forbid if you uh, if you sound boring or not engaging yeah. the audience properly. Yeah, I know, and, and some of the things I talk about are not very exciting, so I don't know how that works. You just have a good stage presence, David. Um, anyway, but they, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I think that people in the workplace need to start using some of these video technologies. I know in my business, nobody ever does. I offer to do it. Recently, I had to hire an attorney in London and I wanted to see the guy's face. I just wanted to have that level of interaction with him. And so he agreed to do a Skype video call with me, but it was really like pulling teeth. I think it works better with people that you have some kind of relationship with already. I think, you know, maybe someone that you've never really met or never really worked with before, not likely to work out as well. It's a little uh, unnerving. I remember my first interview for Macworld when I was first looking at the job. uh, I was currently living on the East Coast before I moved to San Francisco to take the job. And when I had my my interview was over video um, with Jason, who I had met before, but um, Phil Michaels and at the time my – who was going to become my boss, Heather Kelly, both of whom I had never met before and doing this video conference where it's like, well, the uh, – you know, I have to be charming and engaging on this conference and look like I'm – should fit in a in a social – in a Macworld type office or – you know, you get, you get a lot more nervous talking on a video conference than you do uh, – just going in for an interview, it feels a lot more, uh, a lot it weighs on your soul a little bit more, and and you have to make sure that you're sitting in the right place, right? You know, you don't want to have your dirty laundry sitting in the back while you're yeah, trying to interview in the, for a job. What's in the background? Do I have nice books that make me look smart <laughs> and studious? Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. My my seven year collection of MacWorld magazine is right here. Well, strategically I've, I've, located. I've given some talks to Mac user groups all over the country via you know chat you know, with the camera on and me sitting at home in front of my computer. And honestly, I really don't like doing them because it's such a disconnect between you and the people that are are watching. And sometimes they'll put even the camera out there and they look so bored. You know, (laughs) when, when you're not in the same room with people, it's really hard to be engaging as a speaker, I think. Yeah. You could be the funniest person in the world, but uh, sometimes it just can't get through the screen. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, kind of that 
because you guys are all broken up and, and you're working from home, you talked about how it's easy to kind of zone out and things like that on, you know, phone conferences. And that's one of the reasons why you try to stay engaged with, with hip chat and try to stay engaged in the office with these, with the regular Google hangouts and check-in. But, but how do you stay engaged in a, a, a working from home type environment um, where maybe things aren't as structured as they would be if you were actually going into the office on a typical nine to five. How's the working from home thing? Do you have any tips from people who are trying to work from home or trying to convince their bosses to let them work from home? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think the primary thing is you need a workspace that is yours, um, that is solely for your work. Um, I move around a lot. I live in a studio, so my, uh, I'm not always necessarily working at my workspace, but knowing that I have a place like a corner of my studio that is dedicated just to me working uh, allows me to kind of shut out the fact that, oh, my bed's behind me and it's unmade and I'm not going to you know, po- focus on that because right now I need to write a story for somebody. Um, so having a dedicated workspace is really important. Um, also, I find keeping with a routine, it's really easy once you start working from home to be like, oh, I'm just going to sleep in an extra 20 minutes and maybe I'll sit down in my pajamas and I'll get some breakfast, you know, two hours into the workday. But it helps me at least a lot to stay focused and be like, all right, despite the fact that I don't have to be on a bus at 830, I'm still going to wake up at, you know, eight and I'm going to take a shower and get myself a cup of tea and sit down and then begin my work and like put on clothes and then like treat Treat the working at home like I am going into an office. It just happens to be my office instead of an office cross town. Yeah, I think that's really a challenge. Um, And it's something that people are increasingly facing with telecommuting and and jobs where you don't need to be in the same city as your employer. Absolutely. It feels like there's been more of a shift and and maybe this is just the industry and the and, and the tech industry in the world that we live in. You know, being an attorney is a day job. It it's a little bit harder to work from home when you've got an office and a staff. Although you certainly see it being more accepted. You know, I know my predecessor worked from home one day a week and yeah, that's something that I've thought about pitching and I know it's not uncommon for one of the attorneys to write in and say I'm I'm working from home today if you need me call me here, but you know, certainly having some expectation of office hours is is helpful if you have to meet with clients or, or interface with staff. But it it seems like employers in general now are you know the the previous misconception was working with home means that you're you're goofing off and you're not really working. But now they're starting to see that you know this can really be a cost savings. We don't have to have this physical body in the office. We don't have to necessarily support them with IT needs, and maybe we can have a smaller office if a third of our staff is offsite or more of our staff is offsite. And I, I think. And employers are seeing it as a as a cost savings. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, having distinct office hours, as you mentioned, is really important. Um, it's I mean, I think all of us have sort of a flexible schedule and that, you know, some of us will need to take an hour off to go to a doctor's appointment or something like that. But even working from home, we still have very concrete hours of you can reach us between this and this. And even if we are not in front of our computer, we are expected to, you know, be on and available via communication methods. So if it's like if I'm out running an errand um, for lunch or something and I get a ping on HipChat, uh, then I can log in via my phone and be like, OK, is this an emergency? Is this something I need to address right now or is it something that can wait 10 minutes until I finish putting my groceries away in my car and then I can get home and 
do that. But I mean, being able to stay in contact, the fact that we have this technology to allow us to communicate with everybody uh, more frequently and more instantaneously is much better. I was just thinking the other day, I was in the car going to a medical appointment and um, someone called me to let me know, oh, our website was having troubles and uh, for a different project, uh, not not Macworld related. Uh, I uh, focus, I do some IT work for our roller derby website. And so she called me and she's like, oh, our website's having problems and I don't know what's going on. Um, and, you know, in the past, when you get a phone call like that, there's really not much you can do if you're out and about. It's just kind of a, well, I guess I will take a look at it when I return to my computer. But with technology like the iPhone and the iPad, you know, I got to my doctor's appointment and then while I was waiting in the lobby of my doctor's appointment, I was able to pull up our hosting service and fix some name servers and bring the website back up um, all in the like 15 minutes that it took me for my doctor to come see me. Yeah, so it's I, really amazing the stuff you can do now uh, on the mobile devices. Absolutely. And it's, uh, I mean, it makes it makes um, working remotely very, very uh, not not easy, but it makes it much simpler than it would have been in the past. Yeah, and, and when you look how far it's come in the last five years, I mean, all the technologies you're talking about didn't exist three or four years ago. And now they're pretty common. Just think how much better it's going to get. So I, I think this is definitely where we're going. But I think the skills to work at home are something that people are going to have to work on. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who think they could work at home who may run into trouble. I, I know that when I used to try and stay home and woodshed emotion or something, when my kids were little, it was really difficult because, you know, you've got this little three-year-old sitting there saying, let's go out and play. And that's exactly what you want to do with her. And it's it makes it very difficult. And you can't say no to her because she doesn't understand you're sitting right there. Now, as my kids got older, they get it. When I come home and I have to work, they'll they'll let me have the time to do it. But I think with little kids in particular, it's it's just really difficult. Yeah. And actually, family in general, it's it's funny. My uh, I had to train my parents out of not calling me during the day to talk. Uh, because they're like, well, you're not in an office. You can totally talk on the phone for 45 minutes. And it's like, no, no, mom, I, I actually have to have this time where I can actually focus on my work. And it's uh, letting letting people around you know that just because you happen to be working from your house as opposed to working from an office doesn't necessarily mean you're on call to help with emergencies. Or I mean, obviously, if there's a big problem that you can take, you know, 15 minutes, but uh some people will just be like, you're at home. You can totally chat, right? This is – I'm not intruding on your on your day or anything like that. Um, right. Or, or you're not really working because you're at home, which means you can help me with this problem yes, for me exactly. because I'm at work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely gotten those calls before. Hey, Katie, it. we should talk about a sponsor. We should. And then I want to come back and, and talk a little bit about how you've got your, your the tech that you use in your setup at home. But let, let's talk about our first sponsor for this episode, and that is Squarespace. And David and I both use Squarespace to maintain our personal websites. He's got MaxSparky.com, and I've got KatieFloyd.me. And the main reason that I switched over to Squarespace is because I didn't want to be dealing with configuring you know name servers and when my SQL database got 
got corrupted figuring out how I'm going to pull it out of a backup and rebuilding something and shifting it over to this host or going and configuring this and that. I just wanted something simple and easy that, um, you know, I could pay Squarespace. I knew that they were going to keep it up. I knew that I had one place that I could go and I could blog. And I just didn't have to worry about becoming an IT manager because I do that enough between all of the other things that I do during the day. It was kind of this this one thing that I could do that that was really no hassle, turnkey, and um, you know, in term, you know, the cost of well, everybody says, well, you know, I can I can host X Y Z for free, or I've got this free service. But when you look at all the other things that you have to add up, well, you've got you know this may be free, but then you've got to pay for the hosting, and then you've got to pay for the name. You know, switching my blog over to Squarespace was just the same price, if if not less expensive than what I was spending for all those services combined. So what Squarespace gives you is a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating and maintaining a beautiful website, blog, or portfolio, because they've got these gorgeous templates that you can start with, but then you can really customize them. You can just say, okay, I'm happy and I'm going to plug my content into this. Or, or you can really get down to the nitty gritty and edit the CMS if you want to, to get a really custom look and feel. But Right off the bat, with with just a few minutes of work, you're going to get a gorgeous-looking website with Squarespace that you know is going to automatically scale no matter what device you're looking at, and it's just so easy. So uh, you can sign up for Squarespace. You get a free custom domain if you sign up for their one-year account, or you can link one of your other domains if you... Um, if you sign up for their monthly account, it's $10 a month for the standard plan, $20 a month for the unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year, you automatically get 20% off that price. And if you sign up for two years, you get 25% off. And we can do you one better than that. If you go to squarespace.com slash Mac power users, that'll let you know that we sent you to them. Um, you don't have to give them a credit card or anything. If you just want to try it out and see what your blog content will look like on there, they can import all of your content. And if you use the coupon code MPU4 when you're ready to check out, you can get 10% off all of those other discounts that they'll give you on top of it. So that's coupon code MPU4 uh, because this is the month of April as we're recording this, although not for much longer. Um, and for what it's worth, I just had a conversation with the Squarespace guys. They've been they've been uh, sponsoring the podcast for a while now. And I've got to say, that I really like what they're doing and, and where they're going. And I just like having a sponsor that, you know, we can call up and have a conversation with about the service and about the site. And, and they're just really excited about building a great product. And they really got me energized after this call about some of the things that they're doing, which... I'm not going to be able to say anything about. So uh, thanks to Squarespace for uh, continuing to sponsor Mac Power users. And uh, I look forward to more great things coming from them. And you know, something I'd like to do with Squarespace, because we have so many listeners that have been signing up for it, is uh, send us your sites that you make in Squarespace. I think we're going to start featuring some listener sites in these ad spots. So if you're interested, send us, a, send us your Squarespace site. Let us check it out. And we're going to pick a couple of them for future ad spots. So Serenity, what, what do you use to get your, your work done? What, what is your standard rig that you either, you know, have set up at your house or you carry around with you when you're on the go? Uh, so I have a couple of different computers, actually. Uh, unsurprisingly. Shocker. Given. <laughs> um, primarily for since I moved back to Boston, I've been using um, a 15-inch MacBook Pro. That's actually my personal computer that I bought a couple years ago. But I outfitted it with um, a super fast SSD um, basically turning it into a brand new machine. It, it went from being the slowest piece of technology I owned to faster than my MacBook Air, which is my other a laptop. So I had dueling laptops around the house for a while, whereas the MacBook Pro was basically my stationary laptop that I turned into a desktop where I, I sat it up on my desk 
and it was connected to all of my peripherals. And that was the machine I was using for all the heavy duty stuff. And then whenever I was going out to a cafe to work or um, if I wanted to move around the house while while working, uh, I would switch over to the MacBook Air, which is super thin and super light and I can carry it just about anywhere. I'm sorry. Um, you said you had the 11 or the 13-inch Air? The 11-inch. Okay. So I went, I went super tiny. Um, when I was much younger, I had a PowerBook Duo. And so when they first released the MacBook Air 11-inch, I, I took one look and I'm like, yep, that's my next computer. That's, that's what I want. And the small screen space in some ways is a detriment. Uh, it's harder to work on things like iBooks author projects. Uh, on the MacBook Air than it is on the 15-inch MacBook Pro. Um, but it's still – it's a great machine for travel. I love having the 11-inch when I go to San Francisco for work conferences and things like that because it's just so nice to be able – I can actually work on a plane, whereas with a 15-inch MacBook Pro, trying to even get it to fit on the tray table is a challenge, <laughs> yeah. let alone if someone decides to you know lean back their seat. Um so I have those two primarily, and then uh, just last week I got myself a, a new 21-inch uh, iMac courtesy work since I didn't officially have a work machine uh, here at the house. I was like, well, I do need more screen space because we've started to do a few more iBooks author projects, and um, and I've been having to look at some InDesign proofs recently, and I wanted just a, a bigger screen uh, with more real estate to work on, so those sort of those projects so now um, now the 15-inch MacBook Pro has become truly a personal laptop again, so I've been able to actually put uh, my, non, my non-work information on it. It's, it's, it's nice. It's a little strange to have a personal computer after, uh, after a while of having my personal computers be solely work computers, but getting used to it. Now, you've got, so you've got three Macs to keep in sync. How's that going for you? Uh, pretty well. I use Dropbox religiously. Um, all of my work information is kept in a in a Macworld Dropbox folder, and I have um, the first paid tier. So I have a uh, fifty gigs, a hundred gigs of space, something like that. Yeah, it's a hundred now. They yeah, it's a hundred now. Yeah. I bought it when it was fifty, and then they upgraded me mid cycle. Um, so with a hundred gigs of space, that's more than enough uh, for most everything that I need for Macworld. Um, I keep a lot of stuff in there, uh, all, any of our video work that we do. I even keep um, – we have a central server that I tap in to work on some of our ebook projects, and we have all of the files there. But I've taken to keeping our last five or six ebooks in my uh, in my Dropbox so that I don't necessarily have to VPN into our server and slowly download a 50-megabyte file that I know I'm going to need to reference constantly while working on a new ebook. Instead, I just download that entire book um, and all of its various pieces and and links, and then I work from that local version of the file on my Dropbox. And that way, you know, if I'm working on my MacBook Pro, I can easily switch to my iMac or my uh, my MacBook Air. Uh, so I, it's it's been hard for me because I'm a constant like I'm a heavy desktop user usually, where it's like if anything I'm working on goes immediately on the desktop, so I can see it more easily. But instead, I've basically had to turn the main folder of Dropbox into my desktop and really be good about like, okay, if you're saving a new project, it has to go in the Dropbox. It cannot go on your desktop because then you will wind up, you know, not not being able to access it. Um, Adobe's Screens app uh, for the iPad and iPhone has also yeah. been incredibly useful. I have that set up on both my 15-inch MacBook Pro and my new iMac. Um 
And I leave those connected when I go away for trips so that I can access it remotely. Uh, back to my back to my Mac sometimes works, but as we know, it can be a little uh, a little finicky at times. So I really like having that backup of being able to screen share with my computer, even if it's three thousand miles away, and grab a file if I if needed. Yeah, that that's another technology that's become much more accessible to everyone. But yes. the uh, so now you've got the new super skinny iMac then. I do. Um, How do you like that? It's very thin. <laughs> I I really like it actually. It's funny because I um one other part of my workflow is I recently switched to a standing desk and I was reviewing the uh the Ninja standing desk which is basically um it's take a couple of clipboards, cover them in fabric, put T9 strength aluminum rods underneath them and then take velcro and attach that to the wall and on on its face, it looks terrifyingly unstable, and you're like, "How how can I put a computer on that? It looks like it's yeah. going to fall over." Uh, but the like, I've been using that for the last couple months, and it's surprisingly very very sturdy to the point where I've I started leaving my 15 inch MacBook Pro on it pretty much every day, and then when I got the iMac, I'm like, "All right, I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to put the iMac on the on the uh, the standing desk. Please let it stay." And actually, it it it's perfectly stable um it's a little it's a little weird but i part of me is like okay well it's so thin maybe the the lightness is is attributing is contributing to that but uh in theory the uh the people who make the ninja standing desk have rated it for up to 30 pounds and tested it up to 100 pounds with nothing falling but you know it's still when when you see new technology sometimes it's a little (laughs) nerve-wracking Yeah. So am okay. I on the am I on the right website for this? The Ninja Standing Desk. It, it like hooks over the back of a door. Yeah. There's um. So it off. There are two things that it comes with. Uh, where there's there are D hooks that connect to these big Velcro straps, and you can either connect the D hooks to a giant over the door um mechanism, kind of like like an over the door coat hanger, and that's designed so that you can take it. Say when you're on a trip. And you can hang it, you know, over the door of your hotel room or something like that. And voila, you've got an instant standing desk. It would be um, so fun to explain this to uh, TSA. <laughs> yes. It's like, I'm I just worried this. about somebody opening the door. Yeah. Um, so when I was testing it, I tested it primarily on using like my bathroom door or a closet door. Um, I didn't actually use it over my front door because, yeah, the idea of opening the door, you just see everything sort of crash down. Uh, but those over-the-door hooks are actually also really useful for cubicle walls. Um, so you just, you know, you hang it over the top of a if – if you have like a tall cubicle wall, you hang it over the top and then you adjust the, the shelves accordingly. Um, and then the version that I currently have installed is uh, the D-hooks connect to these weird-looking uh, nails called monkey hooks, which kind of look like giant fish hooks. Um, and they go into drywall – uh, and they almost go sort of upside down and then they they brace themselves inside the drywall. So they're basically just this big, long sort of C-shaped hook that hook in behind your drywall and cement your desk. And they're, they're, they were designed to be super strong picture hangers. And so it makes it makes sense that they've combined with this desk, but they're they're very strange looking. It and it it makes great sense. I know you said you live in a studio. It makes great sense in either a cubicle or a studio apartment or places where you don't have a dedicated office and space is limited. 
Absolutely. God knows. Um, my my area right now for my workspace is a galley that's about four feet by six feet. Um, so I just have the side of a wall in my studio that um, on the left side is bordered by a bay window and that on the right side is bordered by a heater and a wall. So I just had this little corner. I'm like, what could I put in this corner? And then I finally realized, oh, well, it's – you know what? It's just the right size for a standing and a treadmill desk. I wonder if I can find a skinny desk that will fit in like a four-foot radius. And when I was talking to Lex Friedman, who, of course, is the the resident enabler. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was like, well, do you know of any any desk? And he's like, oh, well, I just got an invitation to review this desk, the Ninja Standing Desk. Uh, why don't I send it to you and you can see – how that works and also it makes more sense for you to review it because it's more fitting for, you know, my kind of uh, my kind of apartment. Uh, I really like it. I think anybody in um, in a like a Brooklyn apartment or anybody who has limited space but needs to have a desk is it's really, really helpful. I wish the shelves were a little bit deeper. I'm running up against that specifically with my iMac in that um, the uh, the shelves are only about, I think, 11 inches deep each, maybe 12 inches deep. Uh, and I don't want to put the IMAX base all the way up against the wall because I don't want the shelves to tilt back a little bit. Um, so I, I have it in the middle, but what that means is my face is a little closer to the screen than I would particularly like, and I I sometimes feel like I have to sort of lean back further than I'm normally comfortable with uh, when typing or when walking on the treadmill to actually focus on the on the screen. So it's a it's a debate about whether or not the iMac will stay on the Ninja standing desk or the MacBook Pro will go up there and then the iMac will go on my on my kitchen or on my dining room table and turn into like a secondary. When I want to work on a big project, I will sit down and use the iMac. Um, just depends on working again workflows. There are constant uh, there are constant flexible malleable process and sometimes you just have to play around. But yeah, I I really like the Ninja standing desk. I think it's great. Hmm. I wonder if it's you interesting. could like, mount the iMac on the wall. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, the one downside is that I rent. Mm. And it's like the monkey hooks are about as much as I think I can get away with. I, I worry that my landlord, if I'm like, I want to install a Vespa or not a Vespa, the, whatever they're called. I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. The I want to install a mount for my iMac. I think she might cringe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The So I built my standing desk. And the advantage of that was, you know, you can customize it. I Someone wrote me recently and asked how I figured out how high to make it. And I just stood in my dress shoes and measured from my elbow to the floor. And that's how mm-hmm. I decided how high to make it. But mine has a slight angle to it. And and it's it's walnut and it's waxed. It has wax on it. So it was interesting when I use a MacBook Air, it would slide on the, <laughs> cause the desktop because yeah, it was not, so it's light. It's not heavy enough. <laughs> exactly. Whereas now I'm using a 15-inch MacBook Pro and it, it stays just fine. But I'm always interested in this MacBook Air 11-inch computer, and you know, there's a part of me that that lusts for one, even though there's no need for one in my life. <laughs> and and when I travel, I find that I get by with the iPad just fine, even though I have the really big Mac. You know, when I travel, that goes into my into my carry-on. Um, so, do you find that you get the additional benefit from the 11-inch where you don't, you know, where you couldn't get by with a an iPad in that situation? It's. I think it depends. Um, I prefer the 11 inch over a full size iPad because 
typing wise, it's a lot easier than an iPad and a Bluetooth keyboard. And I just, I, you know, I really love my iPad and I think it does a lot of great things. But, um, but if I'm choosing a full-time work device, I'm still going to go for the 11-inch just because it has a little more functionality for things that I need. The iPad has come very close in recent years with new apps. Uh, but there's just – there's something about having a tactical keyboard that's connected to the rest of the computer and it's – and it's just – it's it's so light. <laughs> it's not as light as the iPad, but it's still – I love the package of the MacBook Air and I love traveling with it. Um However, I will say, and for, you get services, and you get Apple Script, yeah, and you exactly. get all that great stuff that you just can't do with an iPad. Yeah, and it's like I could replicate a lot of that with the iPad, and I have when I've traveled iPad only. Um, but I really like having the I like having the 11 inch to rely on. All of that said, I traveled with an 11 inch and a full size iPad for a while because I'm like, well, I want to use my iPad, and my iPad is you know good for travel, and you know I found that. I wasn't really using the full-size iPad when I traveled with the 11-inch Air. Um, it was just kind of dead weight in my backpack, and eventually I just started going solely 11-inch Air. When the iPad Mini came out, though, they became inseparable, and it was just 11-inch Air, iPad Mini. And that was, for me, the perfect combination of touchscreen device and full computer. Um, I think an 11-inch Air and a full-size iPad, it's kind of a you need to bring one but not both um, but the iPad mini works really well as a secondary device as sort of a light like, you know, take take reading or, um, you know, read in bed or something like that. I whereas the 11 inch air is just a little bit too clunky for that. I'll tell you the big hang up I have with with the air computers in general right now is the screen because I got the 15 inch retina display and it has completely ruined me. <laughs> Yeah, the Retina display is gorgeous. We had a couple of 15 inches in the office, and looking at that screen, it just makes my eyes weep when I go back to the other computers. Uh, when I was working exclusively on my 11-inch, and, and I did, my 11-inch was my primary work computer for about a year and a half um, before I put the SSD in the 15-inch MacBook Pro. The 15-inch was my primary computer, and then as soon as I got on the 11-inch, which of course has an SSD, the 15-inch felt like like molasses like yes. it was the worst computer in the world to use and i'm like well maybe i should sell it and then i realized that you know it's really not worth that much despite the fact that it's still more powerful than my 11 inch air and finally when i moved to boston i'm like well what am i going to do with this computer because i don't you know i don't want to i i like passing on my computers i don't like you know throwing them away i don't like selling them for a hundred dollars and then watching them get it torn apart for a scrap uh, and then Lex pointed – again, Lex, the hero of all stories, uh, he pointed out – he's like, oh, well, I just put an SSD in my Mac Mini and you wouldn't believe it turned it into a brand new computer practically. And I'm like, OK. Well, SSDs are only a couple hundred dollars. And I threw one into my MacBook Pro and yeah, instantly, brand new computer. But it, it, it is faster than my 11-inch now because you know it has a, it has a dual-core 2.4 uh, gigahertz processor and it has 8 gigs of RAM in it. So it's – it is a fairly powerful machine, but it was just lagging from a you know three and a half year old hard drive, and it's, it was surprising to me how easily I could re you know how easily I could put a three and a half year old computer into my workflow as my primary work device just by swapping in an SSD. What Which a, SSD about, did you get? Um, I got one of the Mercury's um, from. Um, Otherworld Computing. I'm trying to remember what the actual brand was. It cost me about yeah. $300 for 160 gigabytes, I want to say. That's not bad. 
And those just keep getting cheaper and cheaper as well. Yeah, I remember when SSDs were horribly expensive and, you know, <laughs> you, you talked about getting an SSD and someone looked at you like you're a crazy person. Now, um, now how right? are you it's dealing with <laughs> How are you dealing with the space? Because I know you're working on book files, so you, you've probably got a lot of that 100 gigs used of your Dropbox. Um, are you having any issues with the various SSDs in your life in terms of keeping track of your space? Um, surprisingly, space has been okay. Uh, the MacBook Pro has the least amount because it has all of my personal files as well as my work files. And it has most of the programs. Like it's It's the applications that take up the most space on the hard drive at this point. Um, the files, I've been using Dropbox's selective sync options actually really, really religiously in terms of all of my – like I keep a lot of personal files as well as a lot of work files in Dropbox. And my Dropbox space is big enough to kind of hold both of that. Uh, but I very specifically don't sync the 50 gigabytes of project files, like personal project files that I have, um, like drawings and music and, and radio plays that I've done in the past uh, – those are all unsynced on my SSD computers so that I don't have to, you know, I don't have to worry about um, an, that extra 50 gigs being taken up that I could use for temporarily storing um, 50 gigs of video for a book project. All right. In fact, I want to talk about those applications on your computers and, and iPads. But before we do that, let's talk about Connected Data, our second sponsor today. Uh, connected Data makes the transporter, which solves a key problem in the world of storage, how to share, collaborate, and backup data between different locations without storing that data in the cloud. And uh, Katie and I are both big fans of this transporter device. In fact, this afternoon, Katie, I'm going down to San Diego to speak uh, at a conference, and I'm going to stop by my sister's house, and you know what I'm going to do i'm going to bring a transporter with me i'm going to plug <laughs> it into their system and now i'm going to have a way to back up my photos again somewhere else even farther away from my house than my sister-in-law a couple of miles down the street i've already done that I've, I've taken a transporter to my parents house they want to I'm know very, what what that thing is in the corner the funny uh, just looking ignore it. thing yeah that's just what i ignore said ignore it i even here's a tip turn the lights off yeah, I do they have a setting there. You can do that. So uh, the transporter device is a little circular device, and it, it looks kind of sci-fi when you look at it. It's small and out of the way, and it's got pretty lights on it that light up, kind of giving you an indication of what's going on. But if you're going to put it in a friend's house or put it at work, uh, go ahead, turn the lights off so it doesn't attract any attention. You know, pay no attention to this drive in the corner. And what it allows you to do is then connect to that storage from your computer and your iOS devices. So you can be working in your Aperture or your iPhoto library and you can get some really great pictures and you can save them to that transporter, which is offsite. And now you've accomplished an offsite storage uh, without having it in somebody else's cloud. It's, it's your own personal cloud space. If for some reason you decide you don't want that connected to the Internet anymore, you can just unplug it. Or in my case, I'd call my sister and say, go unplug it. And you're just fine. So all this is done with the full privacy. The user controls exactly where the data is stored and who has access to it. Data is encrypted and travels peer to peer. There's no central server storing the data, nor does anybody else see the files, even file system metadata like directory names. So none of the cloud service providers offer this level of privacy protection. And this really is a great solution. Uh, another thing I like about it is it's cheap. You know, if you look at the yearly cost of a Dropbox account, if you wanted the kind of storage like to store a terabyte, I don't even know if that's possible. But for $299, you can buy a transporter with a terabyte drive in it. 
And it gets even better. Once again, uh, if you use the uh, coupon code MPU or go to filetransporter.com slash MPU, you get 10% off that. So uh, you can get a base unit with no drive for $200, a terabyte storage unit for $300, or a two terabyte unit for $400. So go ahead and set up your own personal cloud. I mean, it allows you to distribute and share files. It allows you to have easy offsite backup. Um, it allows you to access your files using an iPad or an iPhone or a computer from anywhere in the world with an internet connection. So it's a really great solution. Uh, check it out. Let them know you heard about it from us. All right. So Serenity, um, I, I want to hear about the apps you're using because I know you're doing a lot of interesting stuff with your computer. <laughs> I have a lot of different apps on my computer. Um, you want to hear about the stuff that I do for day to day or the stuff specifically ebook related? Let's start with the the day to day stuff. Okay. Um, so apps I cannot live without um, include cloud app um, for sharing quick snippets of um, like quick photos or um, quick files. It's just a little there's a lot of the apps that I rely on are menu barlet apps. Um, and cloud is really, really cool in that it just it allows you to upload, you know, 10 or 12 things a day with a free account. And you just drag up whatever file you want uh, to the little cloud icon in your in your menu bar and it automatically uploads. And then is lovely. Um, and I can and it automatically copies it to your clipboard to send to people. You know, I've heard about cloud app and I've never used it. So they have their own storage. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's you, just and you just throw something up there and then it gives you what a link or. Yep. Just a link. And then to photos, it gives you a link to um, to a where it hosts the photo. So you can see the photo like inside Cloud's, uh, Cloud's frame. But you can also take that photo out of the frame and link directly to that if you choose. Uh, it's basically – it's a nice way to quickly host files either – or quickly host images temporarily or something like a – we use it a lot at Macworld for screenshots – for instead of sending it, you know, over direct IM or something like that, if we have a screenshot that we want to share with multiple people, we just drag it up to cloud and then have it load. I'm surprised you guys don't use like a shared Dropbox folder for that. We we do. The problem with a shared Dropbox folder is a lot of us, like I'm one of the few who actually pays for Dropbox uh, storage because uh, other people have like Crash Plan or um, or a transporter or something like that. Uh, so shared Dropbox folders sometimes work. We actually use uh, Google Drive a lot, uh, surprisingly, because our organization relies very heavily on Google Docs and spreadsheets and things like that. So when we're working on projects, um, specifically text-based projects, we use that. And we also have our own servers at the office, um, which are harder for uh, harder for those living across the country to access just because they're a little bit slower due to the fact that the servers are across the country. Um, but we, you know, for anything substantial that we want to share, we just drag it onto that server. Uh, for things like podcasts, we have shared Dropbox folders um, for Macworld Podcasts and for something like The Incomparable. Uh, but for the majority of small files, it's just sort of like a one shot with cloud or a sharing via Google Drive, something like that. Okay. It looks like with the free version, you get um, 10 files a day and the files can be up to 25 megabytes or they've got various, um, you know, pro versions that you can get for like 45 bucks a year that, that ups that storage. Yep. No, it's a great little tool. Um, I've never had to upload to the, or uh, upgrade to the premium just because 10 files a day is about what I use 
Uh, although I keep on thinking, it's like, well, I use the tool so much, I should pay for a paid account and throw some money the developer's way because it really is a cool little service. And there's a there's a companion app on the Mac App Store that's the um, well, it's a it's a web service, and then the app on the App Store is kind of the the interface to the service, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a little the little Mac app is the uh, it's it goes in your menu bar, so you just um, it just shows up as a cloud icon, and then when you drag a file up there, the cloud icon turns a shade of blue as it's, and then the cloud slowly gets filled in as it's uploading, and then it turns blue, and it gives you a little like ding when when files are finished. I like any app that gives me a satisfying ding. It's true. It's it's very nice. Um, some of the other ones I've been using Alfred a lot uh, as my primary launcher. I was using a a launcher app just called Launcher from the App Store that I had reviewed a while back. Uh, but Dan Warren and Dan Frakes use Alfred like crazy people. Uh, so finally, they're like, oh, "You've got to give this a try. You've got to give this a try." So I went and I paid for the Power Pack, which is I think twenty dollars or something like that. Um, and that, are you on version I, two I now? It. Yeah, the most yeah, recent isn't that version. Great? It's so great. I I love it. I've been able to automate a lot of things. Uh, their their little um, pseudo Apple script pseudo automator tool that allows you to kind of set up pre made workflows and then attach a keyword to it is just fantastic. It's like I I don't even have that much Apple script coding experience, um, but I've been able to make a couple of workflows that work pretty well for um, for automating some things uh, that I do in my Macworld day daily workflow, and it's just it's awesome. I'm I'm so glad that I finally got uh, got over my stubbornness of using Launcher and went to Alfred. Yeah, and take your time with that app. We we actually did a whole show on it, and there's a lot there. So my recommendation is don't try and learn it all at once. You know, pick a few things, and then just start adding to it as it becomes second nature to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the file um, navigation. One of the things we, when we did a show on it, I, for, I totally forgot to mention is file navigation is really nice. And the way it works, the, the best way to do it is to set it up so you hit the space bar and then t- start typing the file name or the folder name. And mm. it goes right to it. It's, I mean, just open up Alfred and hit space bar, then say Macworld Books or whatever your folder is. And all of a sudden you'll be navigating that folder in your Dropbox. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I haven't played with the file navigation as as much. I yeah. primarily use it for connecting to web stuff, but that's really cool. I'll have to check it yeah. out. Um, another one that I use that I really like is a little, I think it's 3 or $4 on the app store called Break Time. Um, it's, a again, a little menu barlet app uh, that just sits in your menu bar and counts down from 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And then every 30 minutes, it dims your screen and forces you to take a two-minute break. Um, this is really good when I was sitting. I used it to force myself to get up and get like a drink of water or go do a dish or do, you know, get up, stretch my legs, make sure that I'm actually moving around. And now that I'm standing and treading, um, I use break time as a switch from 30 minutes on the treadmill. Okay, now I'm going to go and sit down for 30 minutes. Okay, now I'm going to go back to the standing desk and I'm just going to use it to stand instead of to tread. And like, it's really, um, the studies have shown us like, it's really important to be moving around throughout the day, you know. Just just standing is is better than just sitting, but not by much. And you really want to be like really mo- getting your muscles engaged and moving around. And and so I, I use it uh, to help me remember that like, oh, it's been it's been more than an hour and you haven't moved yet. Maybe you should. Yeah, I, I have that in my office. The, the lights turn out on me sometimes hmm. because I'm, I get if I get really focused on something, even when I'm standing, you know, on my standing desk. 
I don't move at all. You know, I'll be like reading something or focus on it. And all of a sudden the lights just go out. And then I'm like, wait a second, Dave, how long have you been standing here? <laughs> I think I need to download this app, Serenity. Yeah, it's great. I highly recommend it. it sounds um, like you remember. already have a solution. When the lights go out, you need to move. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know how long that I don't I've never looked at a clock. I don't know how long it waits until it decides there's nobody in there. That's funny. You should yeah. find a way to hook it up to break time. Have the lights flash on you kind of like a movie theater. I will hook it up to an if this then that rule and then there you go. it will um electrocute me or something. I don't know. It'll, <laughs> it'll be very interesting when it's done. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a that's a little nifty tool. I already talked about HipChat. Um, I'm just going – I'm going in alphabetical order through my applications list because there, so there are just so many little things. Uh, Fantastical is, of course, amazing. Um, I hate using full-scale calendar apps because they just get in the way. I'm like, I don't really need to see my full monthly calendar. I just want to see a short listing of do I have something? Do I have meetings today? Yes or no? Um, and Fantastical's little menu barlet app is really good for that. And then in addition to that, um, the natural language processing that it does where I can be like dinner for two at 7 p.m. at Louis, and it understands what I'm saying and, you know, puts that together. And then you can use it with dictation too, which is pretty nifty. Yeah. And I started I started using that a lot. I injured my arm a couple of weeks back and was forced to entirely rely on OS X's dictation and surprisingly worked pretty well, but it's definitely, you know. Took a took a little bit of getting used to, uh, but Fantastical was was great for that. You're gonna have to get yourself into Dragon Dictate at some point if you like dictation. Yeah, I I don't know if I if I want to become more reliant on dictation because I love typing and I love being fast at typing. <laughs> so it's I worry that the longer I stay away from typing things quickly and instead relying on my voice, the longer that I'm. I'm gonna I'm gonna lose some some of those fast typing skills. Well, uh, I think it's like you're you're standing and sitting and walking and you know standing against the door or whatever. You know, it's just another it's another thing. I, you gotta I use it, it all the time, but I have um, some some RSI issues, so it, it helps me. But I, I think this is an untapped area. I'm always trying to talk guests into getting to, to drag and dictate, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, I will I will keep it in mind. I'll put it on yeah. the list. Uh, yeah, and the, I think the final, the final general app that I use uh, a lot is um, Reflector app, which is an airplane mirroring. Yes. Yeah, it's um, that we do a lot, a lot, a lot of screenshots of iOS devices, and more recently, screencasts of iOS devices. And as anyone who has tried to do a screencast on an iOS device will tell you. It's kind of difficult because Apple doesn't really provide a way for you to do it. And so I've been using Reflector a lot, as have most of us on staff, um, to AirPlay mirror the signal from your iPhone or your iPad to your Mac. And then I use ScreenFlow in tandem to capture that signal so that I can basically, you know, do whatever I want on my iOS device for my video and then have it captured on my Mac. And then instantly I can go into editing process there. So it's, it's a nice little tool. I'm very thankful that it exists. Yeah, it's a great combination. It was so hard just just a little while ago to get an iOS screencast. Oh yeah. So we want to talk a lot about your um, 
you know, your ebook workflow and how you do all that for Macworld. But before we do, let's take a quick break and talk about our next sponsor for this episode. And that is the Omni Group. And David, I know you are the big Omni focus guy, but I, I want to preempt you for a minute here and, and, and maybe have a little bit of a confession and, and talk about um, how OmniFocus has just really helped me this, this past couple of weeks. I've, I've, I've kind of gone through a couple of months of, of not using OmniFocus, and it's, it's been a, a hectic couple of months at work, and we've gone through some staffing changes in my department, and it, it's kind of, I've just, it's almost like I've just been too busy trying to tread water and keep my head up and, and get things done to actually implement the GTD system. And I was just feeling really overwhelmed and I was really feeling out of place and I was waking up at 2 a.m. and I was thinking of things and I was emailing myself notes and just, I got to the point where things were not working well. And I, I just couldn't quite put my finger on why, why all of a sudden did it feel like, like everything was, was just kind of surrounding around me and that I, I just didn't have a good grasp on what was going on. And I realized, you know, it's because I really have, I've been laxed. I haven't been diligent about keeping up with my OmniFocus. I haven't been diligent about keeping up with GTD. And, and as a result, I've just felt like everything has been out there. So I sat down the other day and I, I blocked off a couple hours in my calendar. And I just did this massive inbox and this massive brain dump. And I went through OmniFocus and I cleared out a bunch of old projects and I updated all these projects. And I really got it back in tip-top shape. And I'll tell you, that night... I slept better than I had slept for months. And it was just really shame on me for, for letting it go so long. And I think you've written a blog post about this, about how when the bullets are flying, sometimes we have this tendency to uh, just kind of keep our head down and try to get things done. But really, sometimes we need to do the opposite. And that's when we need to pay extra close diligence to these systems that help us get things done. And uh, I, I guess that's what this this little episode has taught me. So what OmniFocus is, it, it, it is the GTD system that will help you bring chaos to all of these random things that are moving around, whether it's these to-do lists or the, these tasks that come at you via email or via phone calls or via things that are in your inbox. And you just, you know that you've got all these things out there, but you don't quite know what to do or where to start or what you can do. Um, but just grabbing all of these things and putting them into a dedicated system like OmniFocus really helps you take all of that chaos and put an order to them. So if nothing else, you just know where to start and you know, okay, these are the things that I can do now. These are the things that I can do next. My internet's down, but my phone still works. So I can actually get these, these, and these things done. And I just kind of felt like I knew where to start. And that was worth you know, more, more, more than, than any price that you could possibly pay for an app. But, uh, yeah. and OmniFocus just does such a great job of, of letting you do that with the review tab and all the different management tools they have. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, it, it was, it was beyond time. And so, uh, forgive me for, uh, for becoming lax on this. And, um, uh, I, I promise that this episode has, has taught me my lesson and I, I will not do so again. You know, you think it's taught you your lesson, but it hasn't because as much as a big, you know, OmniFocus nerd I am and everybody thinks I've got it all figured out, I have the same problem sometimes. In fact, you probably know better than anybody, Katie, because you know when I start to fall apart at the seams because I'm not as good as getting back to email with you or whatever. Um, and I have to go and just take a break and sit down with OmniFocus and kind of drill down and, and get control of the chaos again. I mean, it's not something that I think you ever completely solve. Right. 
So the good news is that we know that OmniFocus 2 has been announced, and you can read all about that on their website and their blog, and you can watch their videos. But if you can still, you know, there's no reason that you need to live in chaos until that comes out. If you go purchase OmniFocus now through the Omni store on their website at omnigroup.com, the upgrade to version 2 is free. And you can find more information on their website at omnigroup.com. They've also got Omni uh, focus for the iPad, which is $40, and OmniFocus for the iPhone, which is $20, so it will integrate in your system, and uh, you can keep the chaos at bay no matter where you are. So thank you to Omni Group for supporting the show and for just making really awesome products. So. Let's talk about EPUB. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so the, this is the, the joke, is I'm the biggest fraud in the self-publishing game because people think I've got it all figured out because I've got a couple good books. And the fact is I'm just using Apple's tools for iBooks Author because that's what makes sense for me. Now, Serenity Caldwell, however, this lady has figured out just about every method of EPUB that you can that you can wrap your mind around. Every time, every year at Macworld, you and I sit down and talk a little bit. And I'm just amazed at some of the tools and tricks that you have put together over the years of putting these EPUB books out, Serenity. Lots of trial and error and lots of help. Yeah. Um, EPUB is such a weird – I mean – and at its base, it shouldn't be that complicated a format. It's HTML, CSS, a little bit of JavaScript, and then a package wrapper to turn it into the EPUB format. So you'd think that on, on its face, that sounds really simple. It's like, all right, well, I know how to code a website. I can deal with basic HTML. You just tell me what I can and can't use, and I'll go from there. Um, unfortunately, with a bunch of different devices and platforms and things like that, uh, Building an EPUB is a lot more like working in 1990s web publishing where, you know, something like a table would render OK on Internet Explorer and then look horrific on Netscape or or iCab or God. I, it, it, it causes me to shiver involuntarily when I think about 1990s web publishing. Uh, and well, well think- Serenity, is the problem because of the various vendors making these device readers for EPUB it's, or is it the format itself? It's – you know, I think the format itself is great. The format itself is very clear cut and the standards organization is the same – the W3C is it's the same that's working on the standards for HTML and CSS. So I mean in – at its base, the EPUB format is actually really cool. Uh, it allows you to either have no DRM or to embed DRM into it. Uh, it supports a lot of the latest uh, quote-unquote Web 2.0, Web 3.0 standards. Um, the problem is the implementation by the manufacturers. Apple has been very good about trying to keep up to the standard um, with their EPUB 3 support. Um, EPUB 3 is the latest form version of the standard. So Apple's iBooks has been really good about that. Um, unfortunately, Amazon uses a wrapped proprietary version of this called Mobi, which is based on the Mobi Pocket format that Palm used to use. And Mobi, while having the same basic underlying structure, uh, also is coded in a completely unfathomable, obscure way. And as such, uh, it's very unclear about what what you can use uh, to actually build a Mobi Pocket file. Everything gets run through a converter uh, called KindleGen if you want to convert an EPUB to a Mobi file. And that converter basically takes your nicely formatted HTML and CSS and tries to degrade it and uh, morph it into a way that 
the Moby Pocket uh, system can understand. Uh, it's I, I'm trying to think of the best way to it's it's kind of like that Adobe Air app, right? Where it's Moby Pocket is is it's complete. It's a completely different intermediary uh, that takes HTML and CSS and warps it. Um, okay. So like when you get a, a tips book for Macworld and mm-hmm. it starts out as an EPUB, right? Is that your, your base format? Yeah, our base format is actually a PDF, um, although we build – so uh, we've gone over a couple of different variations throughout the years. Our most recent uh, structure and the way that we've been doing it most recently, uh, we take an InDesign file and then from that InDesign file, it goes to a PDF and then it goes to a raw EPUB. And then from the EPUB, we build a format that can also work on the Kindle and also work on the Sony um, – on the, the Sony Kobo and the Nook and all of the other major readers. Kindle so far is the only major reader that has a proprietary platform that we have to convert. Everything else is just based on a different subset of EPUB, for instance, like the Nook only supports about a third, two-thirds of the EPUB uh, HTML, CSS commands that iBooks supports so that when we're reformatting a book for the Nook from the iBooks version, we have to take out certain things like, oh, well, this tag isn't supported, so we can't use this, and this CSS command isn't supported, so we need to figure out a, a different way to make this book look just as good without using that CSS command. So it's not a question of just applying a a filter to it or running a script to make the different format. You really have to go in and massage the data afterwards. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, the last year or so, we've gotten to a point where it's become much more automated because having spent a lot of time with each of these formats, I can point to the Kindle and say, OK, I know what HTML commands will convert properly to Mobi. And Kindle also, by releasing the KF8 format for Kindle Fire and um, for the Paperwhite, which is a very similar format to EPUB 3. It's just, again, it's wrapped. But that format, the KF8 format, does actually use HTML and CSS. And they have a list of, unlike any other uh, publisher right now, Kindle has a list of what HTML commands work and what HTML commands don't work. So once they put those guidelines up on their website, I basically – dove into those and went, okay, we can use this, 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 and this. And also, Kindle now has an, has an option in their CSS style sheet where when you're building it, you can say, okay, I want these things to show up if they're reading this Mobi file on a KF8 device like a Paperwhite or a Fire. And I want – instead, I want these CSS commands to show up if they're reading it on an older Kindle. So for the first time, we've been able to make books for the Kindle – that look identical to our books on the iBook store if they're viewing on a Kindle Fire or on a Paperwhite. And then if they're viewing it on an older Kindle, it reduces down to a very simplified version of the book without making the design look horrible. So I'm, I'm able to actually have full control of what it looks like in Moby Pocket for the first time. And that's that's really cool. That so sounds like so much work. <laughs> <laughs> it's Yeah. I mean it used to be – we used to spend probably 80 to 100 hours per book um, figuring out and massaging EPUB formats. Now we've got it down to about 10 to 12 and that's a result of a lot of hard work um, by myself and also by our sole production uh, person, Nancy Jonathans, who's – a saint. She um she does all of the production. She's not really you know you don't hear her name a lot um 
when we talk about Macworld. But she and um, her um, her production partner Tamara Gargas are the two people who do all of the production for the magazines, um, Macworld and PC World, and also all of the productions for the digital versions of the magazines. And Nancy has been working with me on basically massaging out the various forms of EPUB, and she's gotten it to a point where it's mostly automated. And it's thank thank goodness <laughs> it it makes it a lot easier for us to also think about experimenting with new things in EPUB like video, which heretofore you've only really been able to do in, an, say, an iBooks author project without everything going haywire. But um, the well, EPUB is, three, yeah. I'm sorry. What, do you know what Amazon is charging these days to authors for um, for bandwidth? You know, because I know there's a fee that gets yeah, charged. Yeah, there, there is a fee that gets charged. Um, it really depends on how large your book is. I think that varies. Um, our books have never been so large or, because we also compress images on Amazon's platform. iBooks gets the full uncompressed pretty retina images, but Amazon as a result of that bandwidth problem um, – we deliver much more compressed images to them. Uh, but I seem to remember it's like 0.03 cents or something like that per megabyte, um, maybe 0.3. I'm not really sure. I, when uh, I first wrote Paperless, I was you know considering putting out a version for Kindle, mm-hmm. which would have been really hard, frankly, because – You'd have to rebuild it. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of video and everything in there. But I looked up the at that time the download fees for an 850 megabyte book was like 120 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so in order for me to make five dollars on the book, I'd have to sell it for 125, and that just didn't sound to me like it was worth the trouble. <laughs> but, I, think, uh, I think it. I think they'll buy. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe fine. for yeah for paperless. Yeah. Absolutely, everybody wants to be paperless. But the. Uh, um, yeah, so but I think they must have got better at that. But you know, there's just so many. It seems to me like there's a lot of barriers uh, for people trying to get into this stuff, and and uh, I really admire the time you spent to figure out how to make this happen because I don't think many people have. Yeah, well, it's one of those it's one of those fields that everybody says, oh, I you know, books they're going to be big in five years on on online devices and digital devices, uh, but a lot of people are just kind of putting in sort of half-assed work, uh, pardon my French, uh, in terms of like the major publishers uh, have most of their books available digitally, but a lot of times they'll just run a straight conversion script from a PDF, which makes the text look just terrible. I mean, anytime you've gotten a digital book and you flip the page and all of a sudden there are three blank pages or there's 17 line breaks in between one paragraph and the next, and the next it's, it's obvious that that person was using like a a script from Caliber or something like that to post-convert a beautiful PDF into a haphazard EPUB that get, then gets converted into a Mobi, et cetera, et cetera. So it's I, I'm really pushing for more awareness of basic, you know, that the EPUB format and working in the EPUB format and the Kindle formats, it's not it's not impossible. You just have to be willing to take an initial journey and learn some of the core factors. Uh, Liz Castro, who does Pigs, Gourds, and Wikis, is an amazing resource. Um, She is who I credit to half of my understanding about uh, EPUBs and and their software and and a lot of the tricks that I've picked up for our books in terms of like keeping images and captions together and Good page breaks I've learned from her. So she's she's a fantastic resource for people who are interested in getting into 
ebook publishing. Um, but really, I mean, you just you have to be willing, whether you're an author or whether you're somebody who's working with an author who wants to publish something electronically. Um, if you want to publish on multiple formats, you got to be willing to sort of take the work. Uh, there is, of course, the iBooks author option, uh, which David, you know quite a little, quite a lot about. Um, well, that one has its own quirks too, but uh, this it's, is true. <laughs> it's manageable. I, I, I feel like I've got that under control, but I, I am just daunted by the idea of trying to go to these multiple formats and all these problems that people are running into. I suspect yeah. it'll get easier. It will. You know, I've already, you know, I've seen some software um, that unreleased so far from developers that have me highly hopeful for the future of the the ebooks industry. And I really, I do hope that iBooks Author, you know, it's a pipe dream because right now what Apple is doing with iBooks Author is they're really offering people a way to make apps as books in a, in a certain way. It's like if you have a story that's better, that's better told as a book than as an app, and there are plenty of, there were plenty for a while of apps released that looked, you know, that were picture books or things like that or studies um, with interactive graphics. It's like instead of worrying about building an app, we're going to give you this tool to, to use instead. Um, so I, as much as I would like in my heart of hearts for Apple to offer similar tools for EPUB 3, I think they will probably just stick to their sort of custom iBooks author format, which only, of course, works on um, iPads at present. You know, something I've always wondered with iBooks Author is why don't they have a Mac app? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I guess I misstated that. Why don't they have a Mac reader? <laughs> yeah, like you Kindle would, does. Yeah, you would think that by this point, Apple would have made an iBooks for Mac. And I know it's been on our, you know, WWDC wish lists and, and new thing wish lists for a long time, ever since um, iBooks for the iPad originally came out. Uh, but for some reason, Apple has yet to implement that. And I don't know whether that's due to lack of resources or just they de- they've decided that they don't want to deal with EPUBs on uh, on the Mac yet. But I, I really do think it's a, it's a lost audience because it's – People want to be able to read their books on any and all screens that they have, especially with things like the Retina 15-inch MacBook Pro. Um, I mean, I was reading early, early versions of ebooks of like The Wheel of Time when I was, you know, in my teens on uh, on my old like G4 iMac screen, home sick, and that was just sure a wall of text, but it's still, you know, people want to read wherever they feel like reading, and we read so much text on our computers anyway through web browsers and stuff like that. I just don't understand why why Apple has yet to implement that. But did you, did you know they're still writing Wheel of Time books? I know. I know. I, I ran out of gas on that <laughs> so long ago. Oh yeah. You, you just hit a point at a certain time. I hear that um, Brandon Sanderson is quite lovely, but I, I I don't have the energy to go back into a series like that. Oh no, I like him. Uh, I've read some of his books, but I, I don't have any interest in going back to the Wheel of Time. But I think I'm I'm digressing. <laughs> Only uh, a little. But well, yeah, um I, another thing iBooks author needs is a back button. I I get so many emails from people angry with me because I'll I'll put a link in the book that jumps them to another section in the book and they can't get back. Mm. It's got so bad that in the more recent publications, I put almost no internal links in the book to jump around. I mean, there's things that need to happen. It's early days, but it, it's really fun being part of this. 
It absolutely is. And Macworld, we've started experimenting this year, um, building a couple of new iBooks author books. Uh, and those have been doing quite well to the point where I can actually go to our sales team and say, hey, look, even though we have not put this book on any other platform besides the iBook store, it's outselling books that we have on multiple platforms because just so happens that users and readers seem to like it when uh, – when they can view videos and slideshows and interactive content in a book and it's not just static and boring. Yeah, it's definitely the way to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. I will never yeah. go back to writing a book that's just got screenshots in it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not going to do it. It doesn't make sense. For it the doesn't stuff make I sense for a how-to. Yeah, when you're, do- when you're dealing with how-to stuff, especially when you're dealing with content um, that's technology-related, it makes absolute sense to have audiovisual aids and... Blank screenshots just feel like way the way of the past. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, let's go to talk about our last sponsor real quick, Agile Bits, that makes the amazing and wonderful 1Password. Um, we've had 1Password as a sponsor for several years on the show, and I still get emails from people that say, Dave, I finally got it, and now I really get it. You know, at 1Password is an amazing application that's multi-platform and it lets you create truly unique and special passwords to protect your privacy. You know, one of the problems we always have when we're trying to make passwords is coming up with something. You know, I got to a point where I would just randomly push buttons on the keyboard or I'd type the same word over and over again. 1Password solves that for you. It creates a, a secure password for you with a mixture of characters and symbols or whatever uh, whatever parameters you give it. For instance, you can say don't use uh, characters and symbols that look alike, like the uh, L and the I. And, and so it, it really just creates that stuff for you. But then it's multi-platform. So let's say you create a password on your Mac to get into your favorite website. Let's say it's the I, iBooks author website because you want to write your own book. Well, then if you go over to your iPad because it's got an application on the iPad that syncs that data right over for you, you can get in there as well. It's not just Apple technology, though. They also have uh, applications for Android or for Windows, so you can share it anywhere. Um, we've got a lot of great tips we've been talking about using over the years. I found out at one just yesterday uh, that Merlin had retweeted that if you hit, was it option command C, it copies the password for the selected login when you're looking through. I never didn't know knew. that either. I saw that too. How did we yeah, not never, know that? I never knew that because I've always used the mouse to go up there, but it makes perfect sense that there's a keyboard combination. And of course, Agile put one in and I just never realized it. But it's a great application. Another thing I really like about it on the iOS version is it's got these secure notes. And that's also, you know, it all syncs over to the Mac, too. But particularly on iOS, I've got, like, my family's social security numbers and, like, the medication somebody's taking, all that stuff on a secure note within one password. So if someone gets my iPad and they get past my four-digit security code to get into my iPad, they still can't get that kind of uh, information that I don't want shared. They'd have to get through to my one password password as well. And that's obviously a lot more secure than a four digit number. Um, they've got a lot of great features. They've been developing it over the years, like go and fill uh, on the iOS, uh, in particular, the iPhone, the I've almost exclusively used the browser out of the one password app because it logs into everything for me. And it's just a really great browser. Um, so either way, they, they've got a lot of different solutions. If you go in the Mac app store, it's forty nine ninety nine. Uh, if you want to go get bundles, you can go to um, what is it? One password dot com. That's right. And, 
and they've got bundles there. For instance, you can get the Mac and Windows version together. Um, they've got versions for the iPad, for the f- iPhone, for the Android. No matter what you're using, they've got a way for you to securely sync and share your passwords. Go check it out. And uh, if you've been waiting, don't wait any longer. This is really great. And if you've already got it, go share it with somebody. Because uh, a lot of our non-geek friends need this just as bad, if not more, than we do. And thanks, Agile and 1Password, for supporting the podcast. So, Serenity, while we're on the topic of ebooks a little bit, I was wondering if you could discuss, um, to the extent you feel comfortable, how the, the different, what is it like working with these different content resellers, um, like the Amazon and Apple and, and, and doing it yourself? Because Macworld, you know, whereas David's taken the stance of, of he's, you know, putting all of his stuff on iBooks Author and he's really just dealing with one content provider and he really only has to deal with the iBookstore and Apple. You know, you guys sell it yourself direct from your website. You sell it from iBooks Author. You sell it from Amazon. But I would imagine that you still want, when you launch a product, you want kind of a coordinated launch. You want everything to be available at once. And so you've got all these technical issues with, you know, creating all these different versions of the books. But then there's there's probably also some some other issues with making sure that all these versions are available and 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 pass whatever scrutiny these these various providers may put on you. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Uh, thankfully, most of the outside providers we work with um, have been very forthcoming and very easy to work with. Uh, Amazon has a automated 24-hour, 48-hour review process. Uh, so things don't get held up there unless there's something functionally wrong with the EPUB, which is nice, uh, whereas Apple actually does a more coded review to make sure, oh, you know, your images are centered improperly because you used a, you know, wrong code. So we're going to keep you from selling your book until you actually fix it so that it will be nice for readers to use. And on one hand, I like that Apple does that because I think that holding books to a higher standard uh, of viewing so that they're actually pleasant to look at, I I really like. I've gotten so many Amazon books that just look awful and are barely readable because they're like, oh, you know what? I want pink text for the header, but I've coded this wrong. So instead of pink text for the header, I've got pink text for everything. Um, And Apple kind of, you know, keeps a lookout for those kind of things. Um, Getting in touch with Amazon when something goes wrong is a much harder proposition, Uh, whereas Apple is very, very good, actually, about resolving disputes, Uh, especially they recently added a toll-free number that's uh, available to iBookstore developers, and you can call that for free any time during the weekday and get immediately connected with a support person or a developer about your problem. So if you're having a specific problem where you're like, hey, I had a question about why does this CSS tag not work? Or I can't seem to, it's only working here, but it's not working here. Or I'm having a problem embedding fonts. There's actually, there are people on the other end who will explain to you, oh, well, here's the best practices for using this. And here's how we would suggest going about it. It's almost like having um, having developer escalation calls for the App Store, except these are completely free partially because I think no one knows about it yet. There are very few people, I think, who actually use this hotline. So when people do call in, the the support staff always sounds pleasantly surprised to be dealing with a human being. Uh, but it's so much faster to talk to them on the phone and get something resolved than to email. 
And then in addition to that, I've been really lucky in that I've developed some close relationships with iBookstore representatives. And that allows me to really be like, okay, well, we have these books coming down the pipeline. And, you know, this book is about this. And also, you know, we have, say, if there's a new iPad version coming out, um, we'll usually try and prep a book like that slightly in advance with as much knowledge as we have about it. And then we'll rush at the end to fill in all of the you know, details that we didn't have once the uh, once it's announced. Uh, normally, Apple's review times is anywhere are anywhere from one week to three weeks. So having an iBookstore rep and having, you know, getting that that uh, relationship with them makes that much easier because you can email them and basically be like, look, you know, the iPad was just released. We're going to release an iPad super guide. Hopefully we want to release it day and date with the iPad actually coming out. Um, can you escalate our book so that it's actually reviewed quicker and will be available to be on sale for that day? And we've had a lot of good luck uh, talking to our reps and, you know, having them arrange stuff like that for us. So being in communication with the uh, with the resellers is really, really important and using what tools you have to your advantage. Amazon, as I said, only has a email form, so it's a lot harder to get in contact with an actual person if things go wrong. But they're also a lot easier to immediately approve things. So it's, you know, it's a double-edged. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then the Nook uh, is pretty much uh, set it and forget it. You just submit it and it's almost immediately approved. I, I would uh, echo everything you said about Apple. I've had really good experiences with them. And, you know, you always – I was a little worried about it, frankly, because, you know, you hear about these app developers that go through – through hell trying to get their apps released. And they've been really good with me in terms of the books and really cooperative. And, you know, I, I've been very happy. I had one issue once where it arose at about 4 PM uh, Pacific time. I'm on the West coast. And one of the Apple people who I correspond with was in London because a lot of the iBooks author stuff is run out of the UK. And, and I went home, I went to bed, I woke up the next morning, the problem was resolved. I mean, he took care of it while I was asleep. And it it just felt to me like, you know, I, I was amazed at how quickly they responded to a little problem I had. So um, I do think uh, the iBooks author team is, is pretty unique in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and it's really, uh, you just have to, you have to get your foot in the door and you really, um, going to WWDC is a great way to do that or finding a way to meet iBooks developers and iBooks author developers and and people on the team emailing anytime you have a problem to the team, calling them up on the phone, really having them get to know you as a publisher and know your needs and developing a relationship with someone on the developer or on the iBooks developer relations team allows you to have a lot more freedom and a lot more control of how you want your books marketed uh, than just publishing it on the store and praying that something will happen. Yeah. And, and it's really up to you, though. I think at the end of the day, you've got to make a good book and you've got to go out and do some of your own. I think if if you start showing the interest and you take the steps to to make a good book and to try and market it yourself, they will pick up on that and they will help you out. Definitely. Yeah. I really think that um, it's important to put some effort into marketing yourself. And a lot of uh, actually for people who are interested in publishing on the iBookstore – I find actually a lot of the talks that people have given about being app developers on the App Store help a lot. Like um, Michael Jurowitz, who 
worked at Apple, then didn't for a brief period, gave a talk at the Singleton Conference, and now is back at Apple at developer relations. He gave a wonderful talk about uh, having an app on the App Store and what you can do to promote it properly and how to price things appropriately. And even though that's a talk about apps and not about books, I really think it's almost required viewing for anybody who publishes either on the Buy Bookstore or on the App Store. It's it's a wonderful talk and a lot of it is applicable to book publishers. Yeah, we also did a talk together at Macworld this year. And it we was did. you and I and Adam Angst and um and uh, Tanya Angst was there. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Carlson and, and, um, no, Scott, and Simpson. Scott Simpson. Yeah. yeah. So it was um, it was good. I'll have to find the link for that. We'll put it in. It's, everybody had an interesting take on it, I thought. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a new field. So you've got a lot of different opinions and points of view coming forward. Yeah. Well, Serenity, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us today. And uh, we're big fans of the stuff you do. Please keep doing it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and let me ramble on about ebooks and my workflow. Well, it's where, changing, where should, right? Yeah. I mean, we're going to we're going to learn more. I think the next time we'll have you on, it'll be all different again. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Where should we send people if they want to see what you've done and and find out more about you? Um, well, about me, I have a website called IWearManyHats.com. Very subtle, I know. Um, and then uh, the ebook stuff that I work on, uh, you can find it at macworld.com/superguides. Uh, or techhive.com slash superguides. And that has all of the books that we've been working on recently. Excellent. We'll put links to all that in the show notes, as well as links to everything that we talked about in this episode, which you can find on our website at macpowerusers.com or on 5x5.tv slash MPU. You can also contact us through email with feedback to MacPowerUsers.com. And yeah. I think we're all on Twitter. I'm at Katie Floyd. David is at Max Sparky. And Serenity? I'm at Saturn, S-E-T-T-E-R-N. There we go. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we will see you all next time. Bye.